Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 236. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Finding Nemo. Yikes. I, you know, I can't believe, I say it, I'm getting so sick and tired of saying I can't believe, but I honestly can't believe this movie is 20 years old, and I think that has to do with the staying power that this movie has had. I would agree, because we said the same thing when we reviewed Monsters, Inc., that we couldn't believe the film was 20 years old already, but that was an earlier Pixar film, so... While it was a tough pill to swallow as far as our age goes, it was more believable. This does not feel like 20 years. I would have put this at 15 at the most. I also think that maybe Monsters, Inc. has a different feel for you and I because I think in terms of age range, I think that Finding Nemo is a little bit more of a narrow window with its target audience, whereas I think that something like Monsters, Inc. has a broader range of appeal. I would totally agree with that, especially because, you know, just as far as you and I go, and this is not to say that we don't enjoy Finding Nemo, there's just not that much rewatchability. Like, this is not one that you and I circle back to a lot. I mean, really, think about it. When was the last time we watched it before this review? Um, I I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think when Finding Dory came out, maybe? I think maybe we watched this as a lead into Finding Dory. Yeah, I, I'd say that was the last time that we watched it. But as you said, we don't think it has a ton of rewatchability. But why is that? Do we think the movie will hold up forever? Do we think that this is one of those Pixar slash Disney classics that will continue to have the staying power? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. Marlin, a clownfish, is an overly protective single father when it comes to his son Nemo following the death of his wife Coral and their hundreds and hundreds of unborn children. As Nemo grows up, he wants to go to school with the other kids, but Marlin, constantly fearing for the worst, is hesitant to let him go. At the drop-off, Nemo swims to a boat to show the others how brave he is and gets captured by a diver, who later drops his goggles as Marlin pursues him. Meanwhile, Marlin runs into Dory, a fish who struggles with short-term memory loss and swears to have seen the boat that took Nemo, so they set off to find him together. They meet Bruce, a shark in recovery from eating fish, who immediately relapses when he smells Dory's blood in the water. They evade and escape Bruce as they find the diver's goggles, which happen to have his address written on them. Meanwhile, Nemo finds himself in a fish tank in a dentist's office where he is to be given to Darla, a known fish killer who is also the niece of said dentist. 
back in the ocean. Marlin and Dory evade more predators as Dory reads the address on the goggles, which tells them that they need to get to Sydney, Australia. That night, the fish in the tank, including Gil, introduce a plan to escape the tank and return to the ocean. As Dory and Marlin travel on, Marlin tells Dory that he wants to continue on his own as she will only slow him down, which, of course, she quickly forgets. So she gets directions to jump on the East Australian current that carries them to Sydney. As they navigate the perils of the ocean, Dory is injured by jellyfish. However, they are found by a sea turtle named Crush and find themselves riding the EAC. In the tank, Nigel, a pelican, tells Nemo that his father is on the way to rescue him because now the legend of Marlin is starting to spread. So Nemo swims into the filter and jams the motor with a pebble, which Nemo had failed to do earlier in their first attempt to escape. As the tank becomes filthy, the dentist will have no choice but to remove them from the tank, and that will give them an escape, uh, a chance to escape out the window and into the harbor. Instead, the dentist upgrades the filter, which immediately cleans the tank, forcing the bunch to come up with another plan. Dory and Marlin, meanwhile, are temporarily ingested by a whale who brings them to Sydney. In the harbor, Nigel rescues Dory and Marlin from other pelicans and from seagulls, and then flies them to the dentist office. There, chaos ensues as Nemo plays dead, but is taken to the trap instead of the toilet, which is what he wanted because all drains go to the sea. So Marlin instructs Nigel to fly into the office, setting off a huge distraction. Gil helps Nemo escape through the sink where people would spit when they're having their dental cleaning done. Um, and he is led back to the ocean where he is reunited with Marlin and Dory, where they then have to escape from commercial fishermen, where Nemo shows just how smart and brave he actually is. They then return to the drop-off where Nemo goes back to school with the other fish. This opening. Yeah, this is the one that you see in in those memes where it's like people our age and it's like why are you in therapy it's mufasa it's this the land before time uh the never-ending story yeah just the ones that go straight to your core and rip your heart out it it's a rough open it's a rough open and i never remember it me neither <laughs> If I'm being honest with you, I never remember that this is how this film opens. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because this was something interesting that I learned about this film. Uh, the director, Andrew Stanton, um, he wanted to incorporate more flashbacks throughout the rest of the film uh, where basically the journey to find Nemo would be intercut and juxtaposed against Marlon and Coral's love story, how they met when when they bought the home and they moved and then once she got pregnant and then they would do the reveal at the end revealing why Marlon is so overprotective and i i actually feel like that would have worked better because i feel like it would have helped make Marlon more likable because to me he just comes off as pushy and controlling and we're going to see enough of that throughout the course of this film and his relationship with Nemo but to me he's pushy and controlling from the get-go with Coral so I would have liked to learn that reveal later on and 
And I feel like it would have justified more why he is the way he is. But the reason they didn't go with that choice is the exact opposite of what I'm saying is everybody found him so unlikable already. So that's why they did it up front. Well, I actually agree with their logic. Because if you don't know that Coral's dead until the end of the movie, you just have a really pushy, obnoxious father with absolutely no motivation. The fact that he lost his wife and over 400 unborn children to a predator kind of legitimizes why he is the way that he is. I'm not saying that he's a likable character by any stretch of the imagination, but I could imagine if you had no idea why he was so dislikable while you were disliking him the entire movie. But the reveal would hit so hard, and then I think we would be more sympathetic. Whereas here, I think what loses me is that I don't understand what attracted Coral to him in the first place. Because all he's doing is bossing her around. You're also assuming that people make it to the end of the movie. For people that are like watching the movie on TV for the first time, you know, when you don't have any real money invested in it, you can get halfway through the movie and be, this guy's a jerk and shut it off. True. So, I mean, that's... I, I also think it would have been a pace killer because, like, reading this plot on paper was almost confusing. It doesn't read as well as it plays. So I think that if you threw more flashbacks in there, I think it would have just completely ruined the pace of the movie. Because the movie is never really that slow. Right, because it is cutting back and forth between Nemo and Marlin. So yeah, to throw the extra scenes in there, I will certainly give you that one. But I do wish that we had spent a little bit more time here learning about their relationship, not just that they're going to be new parents. I wish they would have built out this world a little bit more like they had done with either Andy's room or in uh, Monstropolis, because we, we talked at length when we reviewed those films about how great the setups are. And here you see a little bit of it, like they've moved to suburbia. Um, you know, you've got a crustacean doing the equivalent of mowing the lawn. He's right. like, tr or trimming his hedges. Yeah. Um, you get that little slice of life moment. And I just wish that they had built that out a little bit more because I thought it was really cute. And I love when they just do clever things where they, they take everyday mundane things and the way that they animate them with these characters, it's just always so brilliant. So I was, I, I was missing that. I thought it was lacking. Um, but what I do really like is that we see Coral's maternal instinct kick in immediately, even though these children are unborn. Um, she still goes to protect them because had she just gone back inside, probably this whole thing could have been avoided. And then you'd have no movie, obviously. But, right. Um, the way that Marlon's just calling her back, if they had just hid, I think they could have escaped danger. But you lose everything that way. Yeah. I also wish we would have spent a little bit more time here because I think the animation is stunning. Yes. I think the animation is still stunning. This this animation, let me get this out of the way now. The animation in this film completely holds up. I love Toy Story, but that movie now, at the time of this recording, is coming up in the next couple of years on a 30th anniversary. And... It's still impressive what they did, but as you watch Toy Story now versus something even like a Finding Nemo, which which is now 20 years old and came only a few years after Toy Story, the the amount of detail that they accomplished in only a few years after 
does make Toy Story look a little dated by today's standards. This, I think, is always going to look good. I would agree with that. Honestly, we just saw the live action Little Mermaid, which I'm not going to get into. If you're interested in our thoughts, you can go to social media. We did a monoreal in a minute review. uh, And of course, we will review it when it comes to Disney Plus. That's besides the point. This coral reef looked better than the first couple of opening shots of the live action Little Mermaid. Yeah. I also like that they planted the cracked egg on the on Nemo's right side for his lucky fin. Oh, I so never good. I never picked up on that until this latest viewing to sit down and and kind of watch it with a fresh set of eyes that his lucky fin that obviously is not fully developed that they cracked the egg on that side. I'm wondering if that's something cuz I was trying to recall if I had seen this in theaters or not. I thought I did. Um but I'm wondering if because we watched it on a smaller television and now we have a bigger screen, it's just a detail that gets lost because it is it is very tiny. And they they focus in on it. It's not like a brief moment. They focus enough where you should see it. I just think it's something that depending on what uh, device you're watching on, it could get lost. Well, yeah, big difference between watching it on a 27-inch tube TV and watching it on a 65-inch flat screen I'm saying right as much as I appreciate that detail I wish that they had waited another beat before Marlon pardon me finds Nemo because I feel like he's hardly grieving Coral and his family Um, I mean obviously he's completely traumatized he's somewhat in shock but we are supposed to be sympathetic to him here And I feel like that's very difficult to do because the way that he's just screaming, it doesn't even feel like he's grieving the loss so much as he's grieving the lack of control and the, oh, if Coral had just listened to me and come back inside, this never would have happened. Instead of like fully feeling what he's supposed to feel in this moment. He just lost... 400 children and his wife i don't well think 399 really, i well it was over 400 children we don't have the exact number but the point is no i don't think we really needed to live in that world any longer keep keep it moving let's go i mean yeah it's true to your point this is a shocking opening it is very emotional um you don't need to drag it on for <clears throat> kids i will give you that but i just feel like And I don't know if this was more direction or the voice acting. I just feel like it speaks more to the character always wanting to have control versus him actually being in pain. Fair enough. Moving on to the opening dialogue between Nemo and Marlon. What I love here is that they literally tell you everything that you're about to see in the movie. They lay out the entire plot of the movie without you knowing they're about to lay out the entire plot of the movie. Yes, I I did like that because it makes all the encounters not feel so random. Right. Even though they are on this epic journey. So Marlin leaves Nemo. Nemo goes off to school with the other kids. I love that little first day of school beat where they point out his fin and you think that he's going to get bullied for it. But instead... 
they just lean into that resiliency of kids to be so accepting and everybody starts pointing out what makes them unique and different so that Nemo doesn't feel so so much like he's standing out. Yeah, it's a really good scene that leads to Nemo then going to the drop-off, right? And showing everybody how brave he is. Marlin appears out of basically nowhere, which is funny because he when he goes, they're going to the drop-off, but they had he bought a home in the drop-off. Right. Because of the school system. Yeah, that was confusing because drop-off is a great bar by the way. Yep. Um I was thinking the drop-off was this cliff here or you know the end of the reef where you go out into the vast ocean right and then on rewatch when i heard uh marlin say oh you know i know you weren't too keen on the drop off or or whatever he's talking about with coral um you know it seemed like she wasn't so thrilled on the area that they were moving to i was like wait did he just say the drop off i thought that was like a one singular area not the entire neighborhood that was a little confusing yeah that that i'm still looking for some clarity on but they go and nemo swims out marlin like i said he just appears because clearly now he's been kind of tailing him the whole time and there's that line that nemo speaks because marlin does not want him to touch that boat the butt the butt and he does he touches the big butt and then he looks at Marlin and he says, I hate you. Oof. It's rough. It's That's rough. so well done, though. Yeah. Like, it, it, I don't particularly care for Marlin up to this point in time. I sympathize for him, but I don't like him all that much. But you still feel like that. It's like that stab in the chest. Yeah. As unlikable <clears throat> as he is, he certainly doesn't deserve that. And I think... That is like kind of a wink and a nod to the parents that are watching because I feel like every parent experiences that at some point where the child just gets so mad. There's that moment of, I hate you. And of course, they don't actually mean it, but it doesn't take away from how painful it is to hear that from your child. Um, but it is so perfectly balanced with the comedy in this part of, of touching the butt. It, it's a really well done scene. And then for me, the entire thing gets ruined because Nemo gets picked up by the diver. The diver who later says that he he believed that he had saved Nemo, that Nemo was struggling to survive, I think, because of that fin, his lucky fin. Right. This diver thinks he's doing him a favor by rescuing him. Meanwhile, he takes him away. And then Nemo, Nemo, Nemo. Nemo, for like five minutes. Nemo? Nemo? <laughs> for really the next hour and a half. Nemo! Like, it, it's too much. No, and this is where the the little scraps of likability that I was clinging to with Marlon are completely out the window because I feel like this is the same thing with Coral is that Mar Marlon's reaction to Nemo being taken is less panic and it's more reactive to his fears coming true. It, it almost sounds like they, like they just should have had him say it. I knew this was going to happen. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like he should be more emotional in this moment. And it just seems like he cares less that Nemo was taken and more about like, this is exactly what I knew would happen. 
So as he's running around hysterically, screaming Nemo's name, he runs into Dory. Right? We get introduced to Dory. I have a very unpopular opinion. Yeah, I don't think people are going to like us much after this. I will say that Dory really is the perfect foil to Marlin because it's not just her being so optimistic and positive against him being such doom and gloom all the time and anticipating the worst. That is really a great balance that they struck. But where they take it one step farther is the forgetfulness. That was just so great that every time Marlon gets one step forward, she puts him two steps back. So I will say that they struck a very, very good balance here, especially even in these opening moments where she's like, I'll help you. And then she gets confused and thinks that he's chasing her when she told him to follow her. Yeah, it's funny in that moment. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, it it doesn't stay funny very long. And I genuinely find Dory to sort of be just annoying. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, the thing is, I, I feel like... To try and make her more likable, you just had to make Marlon more mean. Yes. And the issue with that is we're going to spend most of the movie with them. So now I'm I'm spending time with one character who I feel bad for because she's stuck with a jerk. But I don't particularly like her because I find her to be vastly annoying. And then he's just a jerk. But he has to be so we like her. There's just something here that's missing, and uh, it's unpopular because there's just people love Dory. It's like people love Stitch. You notice that there's kind of a, there's a through line here with me, and I think with you as well. Stitch, Dory, Forky. Oh, okay. Like all of they're they're all very much the same kind of character. Yes. If you think about it. I mean, to be fair, those are the characters for kids. We are way past the target demo of who these characters are written and designed for. I will give it that. But I mean, there are people you know I have Frozen on a pedestal, but you know that there are parents who I'm sure are not only sick of Let It Go, but hate Olaf. So I I will turn my head the other way when I look at it from, from that perspective of these characters were not written for me. But Disney and Pixar also know that these are family films. They know that there are adults taking their children So, yes, you can write to kids without having characters that are just going to grate on the adults every last nerve. Um, I do find Dory somewhat endearing, but I honestly like her more for the mechanics of the screenwriting and the plot than I do as a character as a whole. I would agree. Who I do like that we get introduced to kind of quickly, and we unfortunately don't get to spend enough time with him, is Bruce. Yes. 
So we meet Bruce and the other sharks, his buddies, that have this recovery group. It's so funny that they have a, a recovery group and that they no longer want to eat other fish because fish are fish are friends, not food. And that, that mantra that they keep repeating, it's hilarious. Yeah, this was just such a clever way to subvert expectations. But I love how they do end up flipping it back as soon as Dory starts bleeding. Yeah, when Dory's blood gets in the water, I love that Bruce's eyes change and go completely black. Now he looks like a typical great white shark. That is also just such a brilliant piece of animation is the way that you see that change in his face. Like there are actors who couldn't pull that off and you managed to do it in anime. This is just where it's like, you can't touch animation as a medium. It's, it's just amazing. Um, but I love this whole scene. I love that it's taking place in the boat and they get them there under the guise of a party and look, the balloons. Oh, yeah. And it ends in the explosion. Th- this whole thing is so well done. This is probably my one of my favorite scenes in the movie. See, my favorite scene in the movie is the one that comes right after this. When we are in the dentist office with the other fish in the tank. And they love watching people get tortured in the dentist chair. That's exactly what I was going to say. Those are some of my other favorite scenes is what happens in this dentist's office. The reveal is wonderful where Nemo's just trying to swim straight because he thinks he's still in the ocean and he keeps hitting the glass. Uh, I love that. And I just love the choice of the dentist office. They could have done anything. It could have been a school Although I think you would have been contending with too many children at that point. And I love that they just funneled that all into Darla with like a vicious kid. Um, you could have done a doctor's office, but it just would not have worked as well as this setting with, you know, all the sharp tools and the, you know, the, the other thing, it's just kind of brilliant to play off the fear of a child because no kid likes going to the dentist. No person likes going no, to the I'm dentist. I'm still the biggest baby about going to the dentist. I absolutely hate it. So later on, it sounds like there's a torture happening in there and they cut back and forth to the waiting room. It, it just works so well. It just takes everything that you know about the dentist, everything that you fear about the dentist, and it just like caricatures it absolutely brilliantly. And I love how all of these new characters that we're meeting, we get to to develop them through the obsession with the procedure. Like they're pointing out like, oh, what is he using? This clamp, this tool. It's hilarious. It's so good. And what we get introduced to Gil, you know, Gil's got the scrapes on the one side and we don't know if we can trust Gil. We don't know if he's a villain in disguise, you know, like what is his ulterior motive here? The mystery around Gil from the start, I absolutely loved. Me too. Um, now we, we get through more of the chaos out on the ocean with, uh, with Marlin and with Dory. And what they kind of start to do here is that, this is the start of what happens basically for the rest of the film where Dory is right, but because Marlon doesn't trust her, 
he tells her she's wrong, they do it his way, and they end up getting into more trouble. Exactly. And my big problem with this is, while it's great for Dory, it only hurts Marlin further. Like, you have to have a character that you're rooting for other than, well, his kid's missing and his other kids and his wife are dead. Like, yeah, you don't wish that upon anybody, but you, you can't just rely on that as a means for rooting for them. Right, because the the other thing that's sort of working against it here is we haven't developed Nemo all that much yet. I mean, yes, you sympathize with Marlon wanting to get his son back, but... Nemo hasn't won the audience over yet. We don't know why we're rooting for the two of them to be reunited because we also haven't seen that much of their relationship. We haven't seen their relationship that much when it's good. We saw the little beat before he goes to school where it's, Dad, wake up, I want to go to school, I'm excited. And then it flips like 60 seconds later to I hate you. So we don't really latch on to why we are rooting for them to be reunited. Um, you know, at this point, we're just worried about Nemo being off on his own because we don't know that character as well just yet. Like we've already seen how Dory and Marlin are going to react when they're in peril. And, and it's already been established that they'll figure out a way out of it. We don't know that about Nemo. So that's really the only thing we have to root for at that point is just that the parent needs to get their child back. The, the child has to be with their guardian so that he's safe. Um, and it's just not enough to go on here because then Marlon gets so mean, which you mentioned before, but this is where, you know, he can't even appreciate that through an explosion, Dory was able to hold on to this mask. And it wasn't until she took like a sigh of relief that she, she lost it because she forgot she was holding it. And then, you know, it drops into the abyss and he blames her for that instead of giving her credit for holding on to it. The other thing that I really bump on in this instance is that Dory is the only one that can read because Marlin calls them, oh, humans, uh, he doesn't say scribbles, human markings or something Whatever to that effect. Was, yeah. We know that he can't read and Dory can. But her hang up is going to be that she can't remember. Once she reads it to you, Marlon, why can't you remember it? Yeah. Again, doesn't make him very likable. But um, what makes up for it is the animation in this sequence. I love this effect with the light where they're trying to outrun the fish. But at the same time, they need it to illuminate the mask so that she can read it. Um, this is just brilliant animation. This was really good. Yeah, animation is great, and we get out of this scene and then back to the dentist office where the one of the best one of the best little lines in the movie is um Mount Wanahakalugi. Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's so Pixar. Um but it's this volcano inside of the fish tank. We've all seen them, and it's it's a part of Nemo's initiation into the gang in the fish tank. I love it. The whole thing is really, really well done. And I love the plan to dirty the tank because now they've also introduced Nemo to Darla. Well, they've they've shown Darla's picture and they have built her up. <laughs> I just love the um, she shook the bat too hard. 
Yeah. I thought that was really, really funny. <clears throat> and they managed to snap a picture of her holding the dead fish in the yeah. bag. And then yeah. put it in a frame. Right next to the fish tank. Yeah. Just, just as a constant reminder of how bad things could actually be. Uh, but I, I just thought that whole beat was really funny. And I like that the plan, um, you know, they're not trying to plan to jump out of the tank and escape through the window and think that they're going to make it to the ocean you know, in enough time where they can get back to water. Their whole plan is we need to get the tank dirty so we're removed from it into the plastic bags and then we go. Uh, so I just love that there's like so many steps to it. Um, and it's not as simple as the route that they could have taken. It's a brilliant plan. And watching... <clears throat> This is, again, where you start to question whether or not you can trust Gil because his initial plan is to have Nemo, because he's the smallest, swim into the filter, jam it with the pebble and come out. And you kind of don't know, like, does he really want to help Nemo or is he just helping himself? Right. Because there is a moment where you don't know whether or not he cares if Nemo's going to make it out of that filter. Right, because we learn that he is from the ocean. So is this all your motivation to try and get back? Yeah, it's really well done. And of course, he has so much remorse after that we've, we quickly learn that Gil really is on Nemo's side and he's just trying to get everybody out of that tank. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because Marlon, Dory, Confusion, Peril... We kind of get it. Well, I I don't want to fast forward too much because we do get that scene where Marlon tells Dory specifically he wants to go at it alone. And like, yes, we can see why, because she is kind of holding him up. But he says that point blank to her. He's like, I can't be with someone who causes delays and that's all you do. All she has done is help you. Right. You wouldn't have gotten anywhere. You wouldn't even know where you were going without Dory. So the fact that, yes, that is the reasoning, but he says it to her. It's just, I, I am completely out, Marlon. And he's saying it to a character that's not going to remember that he said it. And he doesn't say it again. So the only people that know that he said it are the audience that yes. are supposed to root for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little problematic. But as we move on here... Dory gets herself injured with the jellyfish because, again, she's proving that she knows exactly what she's doing. She's proving that she is a lot more valuable than he's ever going to give her credit for. And then we meet Crush. Well, before we get to Crush, okay. I do have a note on the jellyfish because this is the only time that Marlon is really nice to Dory is when he's, like, mansplaining the jellyfish. And... Even when she gets injured, I feel like at this point, because she has proven that she's helping him, he's starting to appreciate her a little bit more. But then she gets hurt and he's like, wake up, you have to tell me the address. And I don't think that he's doing that as a way to encourage her. Like, that's your thing. You always remember. Come on, tell me. I need to hear you say it. I feel like he doesn't care about the injury so much as he cares that she remembers the address because he doesn't. Why? I don't know. She's only said it 47 million times by this point. You should remember it. So I just wish that there was something else that he had said. Um, like, come on, Dory, just keep swimming to show that he cared about her in the moment and not 
what he needs her for. Because I don't think that he does care about her. No, I agree. And that that's what I'm saying. You need to make him likable for us. So instead, we get Crush. Crush, who is just the perfect opposite of Marlon. And in those moments, especially when Crush is with Squirt, and Squirt kind of falls off the current, and Crush goes, no, let's see what he does. Let's see how he makes it back. Like, this is where Marlon starts to make the turn. But you would have hoped that it would have happened with Dory because he's going to spend the whole movie with her where he's going to spend a small sliver of it with Crush. Yeah, Crush is just such a brilliant character. I, I love how they made him like the surfer hippie, but it just works so well as far as this plot point because it's not just showing Marlon a different style of parenting. It is just a whole belief system and a whole way of life. And they couldn't be more opposite, but Marlon is still able to learn something from him. It's brilliant and so beautifully animated. Yeah, it's all really well done. And I also want to say now the seagulls that we get, they're perfect. They are the absolute perfect caricature of a seagull. They are, but I don't like that the animation is so vastly different than the rest of this film. That is that is true. With that is accurate. Just those blank beady eyes and and they're like their their faces look so flat. I just don't understand why they didn't give them more animated eyes. Yeah, they look like something out of the Crudes instead of something out of Finding Nemo. Or they look like a storyboard when you're just trying to like get it done quick. The other thing that I bump on at this point is where Marlon's story starts getting passed around. It just feels very random um, because we haven't really seen anything where, you know, they're trading stories from with either different species or, right. or in different parts of the ocean because all we've learned about is the drop-off, which we pointed out is confusing because we thought it was one specific place and it turns out that it's a whole place. And all Marvin has instilled at this point is don't go anywhere. You could meet a shark. You could meet this. You could meet that. So we know that he's not like well-traveled. So we haven't learned that this is how anyone communicates. And I just feel like this was sort of forced but at the same time, you did need to get the news to Nemo that his father is, in fact, looking for him so that he is motivated to get back in that filter. I love the game of telephone, especially as the stories get exaggerated. But you're right. You don't really know why or how this entire thing started. Right. Because it's Nemo, Nemo, my son, he's missing Nemo. That's all he has said to anybody outside of Dorian Crush. Right. Or even, like, <clears throat> if Dory had said it as a throwaway line, like, oh, I heard from this person and right. this person. I mean, like, she doesn't remember, but th they could have really leaned into that, is that she has all of this information, but she has no idea where she's getting it from. Yes. Instead, we get another scene where Dory is doing the right thing. Marlon still doesn't give her the benefit of the doubt. Yet we're supposed to like him. The only thing that they do here that I think works is he slips. And instead of saying, you can't do that, Dory, he says, you can't do that, Nemo. 
Yeah, this is where for as much as their relationship has been clunky the entire time, um, this is a great turning point where Marlon does realize that he needs to put his faith in Dory. Uh, I love her speaking well. I think that that's hilarious. Um, that was one of the things that makes her character so endearing. But where where this really starts to turn around is that she's able to identify the problem so quickly because Marlon just has this tunnel vision, to your point, Nemo, Nemo, that's all he can think about. And she's just able to look at things so objectively. And he's like, I, I have to find him so that nothing happens to him. And she says something to the effect of, if you don't let anything happen to him, Nothing is going to ever happen to him, and that's not much fun. So I love that Marlon is starting to learn from Dory. And while the setting is very much on the nose because this is all happening inside of the whale and now they are hanging off the tongue, um, Dory just has this intuition that they need to let go and it's all going to be okay. And that's been her thing the entire time is just, you know, trust the process, let it happen. Um, and like, yes, Marlon slipped with the line and, and called Dory Nemo, but this is where it really works because she's not only telling him to let go of the tongue, she's telling him, you just need to let go and what's going to happen is going to happen and you have to accept it. And it's a great moment. And like I said, it, it's on the nose, but I think that's more for the kids in the audience. And for us, it's just a really good character moment. It is. And the, it concludes with them being ejected from the whale, right? <clears throat> and they land in the harbor. This nighttime harbor animation is stunning. It's beautiful. For a film about fish that takes place largely in the water, it is remarkable how much they got to utilize Sydney as a setting here. The fact that 20 years later, and I mean, it just goes to show, to go back to the conversation we had earlier, you think about the advance in the animation between this and Toy Story. It was only eight years between the two of them. The fact that 20 years later, this still holds up as well as it does, says an awful lot about, I think, just how far they were able to push the limits right. when it came to this film in particular. Um, I, I love the next day when the, they all wake up in the fish tank. They're all excited because they made the tank filthy the day prior and without any notice, the entire tank is totally crystal clear because of the aqua scum. It is disgusting, especially because they call out to it. One of them says we're basically swimming in our own you know what yeah and then nemo comes out and he's absolutely covered it's it is truly disgusting it makes me cringe this is probably why i don't rewatch it that much to be honest with you um but it's hilarious when they reveal that it is now spotlessly clean their plan has been totally thwarted and now you've got this countdown to darla's appointment and darla arrives and everything about darla is ju she's just she is this little tornado of chaos from the moment she walks into the room. She delivers 1,000%. Um, 
and the chaos that ensues is so brilliant. This is what I was talking about earlier where the setting of a dentist office is just so brilliant because the chaos that ensues once Darla gets there and the fish are trying to make their Hail Mary of an escape. Um, it's funny enough in and of itself in the room, but they are cutting back and forth to the waiting room where there's other kid who's clearly already afraid to be there is not having his fears calmed at all because all he hears is Darla screaming and metal instruments clash. It really sounds like somebody is being tortured and it is just so funny. The chaos is incredible. When Nigel comes in and he is just all over the place, Nemo at this point has played dead to get himself flushed down the toilet, which was an incredible move. And it turns out that the dentist was just going to throw him in the trash can. So now they got to think again on the fly. And that's when that's when Nigel comes in at uh, Marlon's behest. Like, and, and you're right, because they can't see what's going on. Like, again... It is the perfect caricature of everything that everybody is afraid of when they go to the dentist office. And even the way they cut it against Nigel bringing Marlon and Dory into the room, they've got their own chaos going on because uh, Marlon and Dory are washed up on the dock. The seagulls see them. And <laughs> Nigel goes, if you want to live, jump in my mouth. It's brilliant. Um yeah, so you've got chaos cut against chaos, and then it all comes to a screeching halt when Marlin sees Nemo in the bag, obviously doesn't know that he's playing dead. It's just a great way to bring all these characters into the one space, and some of them are in the dark about what's really going on, and it's just a great way to flip the story on itself. And it's a great moment for Gil because Gil now finally gets to play the hero. He fires himself out of uh, Mount Hakalugi and lands on the table next to Nemo where he helps with, you know, some aid from the dental tools, flings him into the spit sink, which is what it is. There's no nice way to put it. And then down the drain he goes and out out to the harbor. It's such a great moment for Gil. And then Gil is picked up by the uh, dentist and put back in the tank. So at this point, Gil has given up his opportunity to try and escape so that he can reunite Nemo with his father. It's a, it's a great character arc for a character that up to this point, you're still kind of on the fence about, do we trust him or is he selfish? But I'm glad that was the extent of the sacrifice because there was a moment where I was like, oh, where is this going? For sure. Then you have a moment where Marlin is gone. Marlin is heading back towards the drop-off. He's going to leave Sydney because he believes that Nemo's dead. Because he doesn't know. And, and Dory is off on her own as well because Marlin at this point just wants he, nothing to do with her anymore. He was completely horrible to her and he just leaves her alone. Even though, well, this was a big character moment for Dory when she yeah. says... Uh, I, I start to remember things when I'm around you and the you make me feel like home. I mean, that's really for as annoying as I find her throughout the rest of the film. This is her redeeming moment for me that just makes her so endearing. And then Marlon does what he does and he's horrible to her and he leaves her. Well, this is the same thing as Ohana means family and family means no one gets left behind, right? It's basically they they build up to that moment with Stitch and it doesn't entirely pay off for me at least, it pays off a little bit more here. I still do find Dory to just be so insufferable. 
but the payoff is there. But why is the payoff there? Is the payoff there because Dory sends the message home or because Marlon just continues to be a jerk? And the fact that I can sit here 20 years after this film has been made and I still can't determine the answer to that question, it's weak sauce. It's also what I bump on is that, you know, there, there's no romance between Marlon and Dory, and I'm glad that they didn't take it there, but it, it's perfectly clear that there's, like, nothing there. And he's still just going to leave her after she helped him. What would be so bad about taking Dory back with you and letting her live in the drop-off? She doesn't have to live with you. She doesn't right. have to stay with you 24-7, but for everything that she's done for you, you can't even you know if they had given him a little bit of an arc in this moment and and had him warm up to her to take her back it would have been so much better than having having to wait until he's reunited with Nemo to accept her but conversely I do appreciate that now that they're off on their own Dory and Nemo link up well to me this is Dory's moment the fact that she finds Nemo and the fact that she eventually remembers, because at first she doesn't remember that she was out searching for him. She forgets that this whole adventure has happened. And she has called him every other Elmo, Bingo, Bingo. Nero, <laughs> yeah. that is kind of funny. Bebo, whatever. Uh, yeah, the fact that th this to me is her moment here more than anything else. And I, I actually, I like that moment for her. Um, it's one of the few moments in the film where I find joy and happiness for Dory simply because I find joy and happiness for Dory, not because I feel bad for her because Marlon treated her so terribly. Right. So with that said, now they eventually catch up with Marlon. It's a really nice reunion that's kind of cut short because now Dory is caught up in a net by commercial fishermen. But I love this escape for her and I love it for Nemo because Nemo can squeeze into the net and he can convince everyone to, you know, do the just keep swimming thing. And then Marlin gets involved with just keep swimming. It's a great escape. It's a great moment for Nemo. And it's like if there's a character arc here for Marlin, it's that he had to let Nemo go into a situation of peril and prove himself. And he's able to do it. Yes and no. Um, I guess my comment is that there is no comment. Um, because it is a good arc for Marlon and Nemo. Um, and then obviously we do get what we want out of it. You know, they're back together. They're at home. Nemo goes to school. He's a happy kid. But I just feel like after all of that buildup, it just kind of falls flat I mean like of course you want a happy ending but like I just wanted a little more from it it's just kind of over yes it's a little abrupt after that big escape let's talk about the voice cast then starting with Alexander Gould as Nemo I thought that you know for a child actor I thought he he was a cute character you know as cute as he can be obviously you're seeing an animated character but I like the I like the the rebelliousness that he gives Nemo. I like the, I, I, I like the, what's the word that I'm searching for here? 
I I like the fact that he leaves Nemo um, exposed. I I like the fact that he is very naive. I I, I think that he's an endearing character. That um, he he's a he's a character that you want to root for. You know that he's acting out in emotion, not unlike his father. You know that he's putting himself in a dangerous situation, but at the same time, you sort of endear yourself to him because you appreciate the fact that he is trying to prove his worth. And I feel like you could have very easily crossed the line into pouty child, but they they towed the line so well, and they never really cross the line at no point even when he tells his father that he hates him did he ever cross the line so i think that he actually gave a better performance than he's probably going to get credit for i would agree with that because to me you have to make nemo the likable one because they drive the point home so much that marlin is just mean so you have to have a reason for these to root for these two to be reunited. Um, so all of that has to be channeled through Nemo. But until you said it just now, I never really realized how difficult that is because when we leave Nemo, he's just said, I hate you. So we're not exactly rooting for him. And then I believe that Marlon and Dory have more screen time than Nemo actually does especially in the beginning like when when they first are introduced and then you go right into the Fisher friends not food we spend a lot of time with Marlon and Dory before we know what happens to Nemo and by the time you get back to him you do kind of forget that he said something horrible to his father but I feel like we haven't really got to got to know him at this point so they had a lot of ground to make up with him to make him likable um, and I think that they do that because what I gravitate to with this character is that he never let his fin stop him. They refer to it as the lucky fin. Uh, he's totally down to, to do this initiation in the fish tank. He's down to carry out their plan because he's the only one who can fit into the filter. That didn't take a lot of coaxing at all. He just agreed to it. Right. Um, so I think he does bounce back pretty quickly as far as that likability. Um, and he is what grounds the film as far as rooting to get Marlon to him. Yeah. Marlon is played by Albert Brooks. And the thing is, I think for this character, I think Albert Brooks was perfect casting. Yes. My issue is not with Albert Brooks. Much like my issue is not going to be with Ellen DeGeneres... But the problem is they just relied on making Marlin so arrogant, so mean, so condescending that to the point that you made, we don't get a lot of screen time with Nemo because the movie's not called Nemo. It's called Finding Nemo. So it's right there in the title. We are Finding Nemo. So, we are, in theory, going to spend more time with the people who are finding Nemo. Yeah. This is completely problematic when you can't really root for the two people that are finding Nemo. 
Exactly. Any flaws with this character, I think, can be attributed to the writing and the direction and not the performance. In fact, the performance is what really draws me to Marlon, even though he's just so mean and so rude all of the time. Um, it's it's just that voice. It's still it's weird. He's being so mean, but his voice is also so soothing that you're drawn to it. I'm yeah. not saying it's enough to redeem the character, but it is what holds my interest. Ellen DeGeneres plays Dory, and it's amazing to me that you could take a comedian that forget her talk show. I'm talking about when you put her in a stand-up is very funny. How you take somebody that's genuinely very funny. It's very similar to the conversation we had about Jim Gaffigan last week. When you take somebody that's very funny and you find a way to cast them in a comedic role, that's not all that funny. It's an accomplishment. It's a brass ring you really don't want to reach for. And I, I don't think that Dory is funny. I think Dory has funny moments. And I understand you had said earlier that this is the character for kids. And that you can say the same about Olaf, right? And how there are a lot of parents that are over Olaf mostly because they're over-frozen in general at this point. That much I understand. But the thing is, Olaf never comes off as annoying. He's never just making noises. He's legitimately got good dialogue. Dory has no, virtually no good dialogue. Oh, I disagree. I think that when she says to Marlon... Uh, you you can't never let anything happen to him. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen, and that's no fun. Um, certainly, the gravitas that she gave in "You Feel Like Home," I think, honestly, I think Dory has some of the best lines. To be honest, um, but, but you I, didn't. But you didn't write this character for that purpose. Well, that's the point that I was going to make. Is that I don't want to say that you squandered your use of Ellen DeGeneres. Because I do think that the voice fits the character so well and just that she nailed the cluelessness of it all. But you didn't give one of the funniest comedians of our time any punchy lines. And that's where it was kind of a missed opportunity. But on the other hand, um, I mean, I remember watching Ellen's show as a kid. Um, My parents watched. I didn't like fully understand like it was it was still like too adult right for my for me at that point um but when I really got into Ellen's comedy was when they released her stand-up specials and I thought her comedic style was brilliant because she's just so observant so to not be able to write to that um I feel like that was a miss but I am glad to see that her talent was used and that she was you know she she did get that opportunity as a comedian to be in a Disney film which we're seeing more and more of lately I think she was really one of the first ones to have that kind of a crossover yeah and and this is where the it really starts to open up in terms of your name talent Willem Dafoe plays Gil he's absolute perfect he's absolute perfection there's no notes I mean we we have sung the praises of Willem Dafoe on this show 
several times. He's just a brilliant actor, and I could go on and on and on, but I won't because we'll be here all day uh, talking about how amazing he is. But what I do want to hit on that we haven't really talked about yet is the brilliant character design that is Gil. Um, Because when you first meet him, we were talking about how we're not really sure if we can trust him or not yet. And I love the choice that they made to not go with like a big intimidating fish. Um, He's an angel fish, I believe. Um, Or, or, Something like Something it. to that effect, yeah. Um, He's a Moorish idol, but they kind of all fall into the same category. Yeah, but I love that that was the choice that they went with. It's not a huge fish. It's not something that looks like it's physically intimidating, but just that little scarring that they give him is enough to be like, oh, should I worry about what the other guy looks like? Or? Yeah, you've been through it. Yeah. Brad Garrett plays Bloat, and I always forget that Brad Garrett is in this because I always think of him as Gusteau, and I always think of him for that very short role that he had in Tangled, but for the role that he got cast for, he was perfect. Yeah, I think this was actually the beginning of a very uh, successful relationship on both ends with Brad Garrett and Disney, but he's always perfect. I mean, he has such a unique voice in and of himself, obviously, but I love when he does get cast. It's always just perfection. It is, as is Allison Janney as Peach. I love her. She's I love her so much. She's great in everything that she's in. Yeah, I I'm such a fan of hers to begin with. Um, this is another. You did not give her enough screen time I wish that they had done more with her character I love that she's the lookout um I thought that was actually really clever as far as the character design too with the starfish always being pinned to the side of the glass I thought that was brilliant um and I love her maternal instinct towards Nemo but I wish that they would have leaned into that with more screen time because he's never had a mother figure and it would have been so nice to see that play out a little bit more Well, I wish that they would have given a little bit more screen time to the rest of the fish in the tank. And I'm just going to run them all off because you really, honestly, it's sad to say you really can't sit there and dissect them one by one. Steven Root plays Bubbles. Austin Pendleton plays Gurgle. Vicky Lewis plays Deb and Flo. And Joe Ramp plays Jacques. The thing is, these, they are comic relief and they're all very funny. None of them get enough screen time. And I would have been perfectly content spending more time in this fish tank with all of them, watching all of them develop a relationship with Nemo, not unlike what we see in Oliver and Company, and a little less time watching Marlin just crap on Dory. I couldn't agree more, but I'm glad that you mentioned Joe Ramp because everything that he does is fantastic. And yeah, this was no different. I wish he would have had more dialogue. Jeffrey Rush plays Nigel. I think for the amount of screen time that he had, it was just enough. I don't think you needed him to keep coming back. For the chaos he for the chaos that he starts alone, it is completely worth having this character in this movie. Yeah, this was kind of a surprise because obviously he does have a relationship with Disney because they got him for Pirates of the Caribbean, which Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, came out the same year, and oh my God, Pirates is 20 years old. That's, oh boy, I'm going to have to let that marinate for a while. Um, but to see an actor of that caliber 
do voiceover and in such a small role, um, it's a surprise to see him pop up. I mean, not amongst an all-star cast like this because they did have the huge names, but, you know, he's done so much like Shakespearean acting. You can see how that translates to Barbosa. Um, but it's just interesting that he would have wanted to take on a role like this, but he's great in it. Yeah. And finally, I, just one more I want to do because the cast is just, it's too large. Andrew Stanton, yes. the director of the film. Of course. Plays Crush. Um, we talked about it before. Crush is just such a brilliant character. I love that they made him, he really is like the Spicoli of the sea, right? Yeah, he absolutely is. Um, But kudos to Andrew Stanton because I feel like a lot of people would, kind of knock on him for you know inserting himself into his own film but the character is just so much fun like why wouldn't you yeah I mean you said it before Spicoli was the exact thing that I thought of when I thought about this character um but I absolutely love everything that he brings I love that he is a Spicoli but he still has these moments of clarity and he is very smart, and he's kind of, I mean, he's 150 years old. So uh, wise beyond his years is not the right term. But you can tell that he's just so much more chilled out, and he lets things roll off of his back. And you needed that to kind of balance out Marlon, because otherwise, like, I feel like we'd all ha- be walking out of the movie theater with, like, super high anxiety after <laughs> watching this movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, final thoughts. On Finding Nemo, I'm going to go first. So here's my deal. This is a good movie. It's got great animation. It has great performances. But why do I not call it a great movie? Well, that's just because there's too many moments that we spend with dislikable characters. The, the characters you like the most are the ones that we see the least. That's a big-time problem for me. Do I think that... I mean, is this a movie I'm going to go back to? Yeah. Am I going to go back to it in the next five years? Probably not. Um, if we had a kid, is it a movie I would let the kid watch over and over? Yeah, sure. It's got great colors. It's a fun enough movie. But like, it's just not something that I'm going to reach back into. I have a handful of movies that I continue to like, you know, Disney Plus, for now at least, has so many titles that you can kind of dip your toe in the water. I seem to go to the same 10 over and over again, right? This is not one of them. It's never going to be one of them. Do I think the movie has staying power? I think the answer is yes. I think that you see that. I think kids still love Nemo. Do I think that the movie holds up? I think that it does. But do I put it on the top shelf of Disney or Pixar, no shot. No shot. Not for me. I could not agree more. I remember as soon as we were done watching it the first time for this review, I I walked away and I was like, why is this movie so revered? And that's not to say that it's a bad movie it's good I recognize what is good about it I this is just it comes down to personal taste it's just not one of my favorites I can appreciate it for what it is I do think that this 
is a rare Pixar film that does not strike that perfect balance of writing to both kids and adults. I think this is very much written for kids and it didn't quite cross that barrier into there being enough takeaway as an adult, even even from like the parenting aspect of it. I just don't think that they wrote to that as much. Um, but all that is to say that it's it's certainly not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I agree with you. It absolutely has staying power. Um, I think actually one of the smartest things that Disney did with it was take a ride that kids don't nearly appreciate enough and put the IP in, and now everybody loves The Seas with Nemo and Friends. And it was such an easy overlay, and it makes it so much more fun. I thought that was really cute and really clever. Um, and I think that, you know, it's still enjoy it's still enjoyed by everyone today. Um, so, sorry, just not my favorite. We want to know what you have to say about Finding Nemo. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are going to be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it. I give her some information in regards to what I want to do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like to pay a visit to the Seas Pavilion yourself, I would love to help you plan your Disney trip. You can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code monoreal10 at checkout to see everything that Kelly has to offer. It's online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Let's talk about Disney parks. Let's talk about Disney, Walt Disney World, pass holders specifically. Yes, this has been a long time coming. They announced it, but we officially got our email. Yes, pass holder days are coming to Walt Disney World. Um, these are going to run from May 31st to June 30th. So what they're doing is they're bumping up the merchandise discount at select 
Disney-owned and operated merchandise locations across Walt Disney World. They're increasing the discount from 20% to 30%. It's not unlike what they do around Christmas time. Um, and I, I love that they bump it at Christmas time because it gives us the opportunity to save a little bit when we're Christmas shopping, when we want like our Christmas decor for the house, then I, we really do enjoy that discount and shopping for our friends, kids. Absolutely. So they're going to bump the discount up 10%. They're going to bump the discount up on dining from 10% to 20% uh, for food and non-alcoholic beverages at select locations at Walt Disney World. Let us know if you can find them because it seems like most places that we've been going to in the last couple of months, we go, oh, do you have the... Nope. Yeah. Really? Because I'm in... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the Magic Kingdom. No, no, this is operated by a third party. Okay. Every, that seems to be everywhere we go. Oh, it's operated by... Oh, well, this by is a... a lounge, so it doesn't count. Right. Even though we're not, even though we're, they don't, they won't discount. Oh, but it's a lounge. Okay, but I don't want my booze discounted. What about my food? No, it's a lounge. There is, I have had such a difficulty. And it wasn't like this when we first got the passes, mind you. Mm. It, it has become so difficult to find places that honor the AP food discount. It's almost not even, like half the time, I don't even bother taking my AP out anymore. And I kind of wonder if that's what they're doing. I, I wonder if they've just made it so, like, like, yeah, you can pull out the app and you can find the locations, but I'm also not going to dictate my day based on where I can get a dining discount. And I don't want to spend my day in the phone having to research things either. I want to just go and take in Walt Disney World for what it is. So I'm wondering if part of it is like, they're just making it so frustrating to access locations that actually give you the lousy 10% that at this point I think most people are just not even bothering. Right, because it's ever changing. I can hardly remember where it's taking. I mean, I understand for places like Starbucks, that's a third party entity. That is a partnership. They're not going to take it. They want all of their money. Fine. Um Joffrey's does take it. That has never changed. Um and polite pig has taken it um and that's that's been pretty consistent we've been we've been there quite a bit but and so does the boathouse boathouse takes it too other than that i can never remember because it it changes but all that is to say i disagree with you i don't think that you shouldn't take it out and just not even be bothered you should always ask the worst that you can be told is no and the best is that you're pleasantly surprised when they do give you a little bit of a discount yeah, speaking of which, at Epcot specifically, uh, through this pass holder event, they are doing 20% off at select outdoor kitchens if you are using a cashless form of payment. So, the participating locations, I'll just read them out to you quick. Uh, the Farmer's Market in Bauer Market, which I believe is over in Germany. Brunchcott, Epcot Farmer's Feast, Florida Fresh, La Isla Fresca, Magnolia Terrace, Northern Bloom, the Pineapple Promenade, the Refreshment Outpost, the Refreshment Port, Tangerine Cafe, the Citrus Blossom, the Honey Bistro, the Land Cart, and Trowel and Terrace, uh, a Trowel and Tellus, excuse me, uh, which is the Impossible Stand. It's so interesting to me that they will not honor this discount if you're trying to pay them with cash. Yeah, because usually that is where if you pay with cash, they'll waive the tax. I mean, that's more for private business, but usually they will waive the tax if you pay with cash. I'm not saying that, that happens at Disney, but that's usually the golden standard. So it's surprising that they would do that. 
Um, I mean, that everything that you listed there, that is basically every booth at Flower and Garden. They don't have quite as many as wine and, uh, the Wine and Food Festival does. So I think you can you know, safely say that it's being offered everywhere. I just think that it's interesting they choose to do it now after everybody's experienced the festival. But I see this is the balance. This is where they rely on their APs. People who want to experience it, they've come already. They came earlier in the year. They came for spring break. Now you want us in there because there's that little lull before summer vacations start. And most people who are going to do this for summer vacation, they're already interested in wine and food. Flower and Garden's kind of done. So it's kind of like, hey, could you come out and spend your money? We'll give you a little bit of a discount. Well, that and that's why they're releasing this figment magnet, too. Like, it's all yeah. they're just trying to get you into Epcot specifically. But I do appreciate that they are throwing us a little bit of a bone because this is something that under the last regime. Right. They did not understand that these are the times of year you do need your APs as a crutch. And they're smart about it, too, because. You know, jokes on me, I got, I mean, I got my 20% off, but I bought my Orange Bird hat last time we were at Flower and Garden. I would have saved 30% instead of 20 if I went and got it now. Basically, what they're doing is, instead of just blowing these things out on clearance or sending them to the character warehouse, because they're, they're, they're dated at that point, so you really do have to mark them down considerably, you probably, you probably make more money selling them to pass holders at 30% off and blowing out as much of your inventory as you can leading into food and wine festival. Right. Now, the other thing that they're doing is they're doing a pass holder offering at the sunshine seasons in the land pavilion. Um, they're going to offer a spark of, of grape shake and a raspberry lemonade tart. This is where it says right here, cool off and take a break at this reserved space just for pass holders. So basically what you've done is you took that little seating area by that grab and go kind of quick serve food court across from Soren, and you've just turned it into a makeshift pass holder lounge. There's always seating there anyway. If I'm being honest with you, like as I'm kind of sitting here thinking it through, what they would be what they would be wise to do in my opinion instead of building out a whole pass holder lounge take an existing space mm. that you only recently started using during festivals which is the odyssey and i think if you turned the odyssey into a pass holder lounge they we know that they they're selling exclusive merchandise like all the orange bird stuff all of the figment stuff during Festival of the Arts, you only got that in the Odyssey. Now, um, you know, Orange Bird kind of trickled out a little bit further, but, like, they really did try to kind of, like, make that exclusive to that area. And draw you in with the figment cake. Right. So if you wanted to do these pass-holder-exclusive drinks, pass-holder-exclusive food, you have pass-holder-exclusive merchandise, put all of that in the Odyssey... Make that a pass holder lounge. It's a big enough space. You've got tons of room. You could, you know, pass holder exclusive bathrooms are right there. You know what I'm saying? Like you could just use that as opposed to just, I mean, yeah, it's nice that you theme it. And yeah, okay, it would be a lot more niche if it were just for the pass holders. But I think that's a little bit more successful than taking a food court that's always there and saying, well, for the next five weeks, nobody sits here. You can have it. Well, 
I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth because this is more than they've done for APs in a while. We yeah. were just talking about how much of an experience we got being universal APs where there's, you know, standing areas for the parades. There's a new AP lounge that they just redid. During Mardi Gras, they had a night where they stayed open just for APs. I don't see Disney doing anything like that anytime soon. No. But what I am wondering is if by doing this reserve seating area, if it's sort of a test run to see how much the APs are utilizing it and if we are maybe going to get some type of a lounge down the line. Because they have one for Disney Visa card holders. They have one for uh, DVC in Epcot. Both of those are in Epcot. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if maybe that's what they were going to do because those are actually, based on where they're putting this reserve seating, I'm not 100% sure it's in the food court because that is a food court. You need people who are dining there to be able to have a seat. There is another room in that pavilion where they had like a chocolate display one year for the wine and food festival. Right. I'm wondering if it's there because the other thing that I was thinking of is that if you have it in the food court, it's going to be very hard to patrol. And I feel like they're not going to have people standing there turning guests away who are trying to eat because that's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. Whereas the DVC lounge and the Visa card uh, lounge, those are very heavily patrolled. Like they do check your credentials to get in there. So I'm I'm wondering if it is going to be this exclusive thing and they are going to start like scanning to see if you are utilizing it and then maybe they think a little bigger and give us a designated space. Like maybe the entire pavilion that's just sitting there not doing anything. I think that a lot of this just points to 2024. You know, 2024, we're getting dining plans back. They're getting more discounts back. They're lifting a lot of the restrictions in January of 2024 after Marathon Weekend, of course. So I th I wonder if a lot of this, to your point, is a test. And if it is a test, if the attendance is low in 2024, I think they're going to incentivize the way that Chapek didn't want pass holders. I think Disney's going to need pass holders. Yes. And I think that they're looking at new ways to incentivize you to become a pass holder. And I think that that all comes in the future. We're going to have to go and see it. I mean, we need our figment mag. I mean, for research purposes. For research purposes, it's content for a dockside chat. And we have to let you all know. So we're going to have to we're going to have to research this and let you know how it turns out. I mean, if we have to fall on that sword. We'll do it. It's what we're here for. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. We love to hear from you. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And for news related or for anything related to the show, it is always going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.